the rare Champion of Hope Awards honor individuals and foundations who are making exceptional strides when it comes to rare disease advocacy and change. On November 12th at 7 p.m. Eastern, Global Genes will honor the awardees in this year's Rare Champion of Hope celebration. This is always one of the most moving events for me of the year, and it, it's a chance to hear from really remarkable people doing extraordinary work on behalf of the rare disease community. There's no cost to join in the celebration. If you'd like to register to watch the event, go to globalgenes.org and pull down the events tab. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. It began as a Facebook post for someone looking for help getting a child with a rare neurological condition whole genome sequencing. It resulted, though, in groundbreaking work by Timothy Yu, a neurologist and attending physician in the Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital, to develop a custom antisense oligonucleotide therapy for the little girl who had a rare form of the neurodegenerative condition Batten disease. The work to design and deliver an antisense therapy in under a year has excited the rare disease community for the potential of individualized therapies that address the underlying genetic mechanisms of rare diseases. We spoke to you about his work, the potential to industrialize the creation and delivery of individualized therapies for rare disease patients, and the challenges that need to be addressed. Tim, thanks for joining us. Uh, very, very nice to uh, to. to to be on the show. And uh, thanks so much for having me. We're going to talk about your groundbreaking work to develop a customized antisense therapy for a child with an ultra rare form of the neurodegenerative condition, Batten disease, how that's changing the world of rare disease and and the potential to design and produce so-called N of one therapies for a larger scale of patients. It's my understanding that your involvement in this began with a post on Facebook that your wife had seen what had happened? That's exactly right. This was a, a very unusual opening for this case. It was back in January of 2018, and uh, my wife uh, turned to me at the dinner table and said, have you seen this post? She showed me a message that had been forwarded to her on Facebook on a group called the Physician Moms Group, and it was forwarded by a colleague of ours at Mass General Hospital. And it described uh, the sad case of a little girl um, from Colorado who had just been diagnosed with Batten disease and the need for that family uh, to find someone who could offer whole genome sequencing to help them confirm the diagnosis. And yeah, that's how this all started. It was really just uh, seeing uh, that social media post, reading about their story, realizing that they needed some help with the the diagnostic workup uh, that got us uh, going on this case. Mila, the the little girl who was diagnosed, uh, had CLN7, which is a a form of Batten disease. What is Batten disease? 
Bowel disease is a rare condition that affects kids. It's a genetic condition, and there are、uh, several different subtypes. But what they share in common is that patients who are affected by this condition have a problem with the recycling machinery in their cells. Their cells,、uh, our cells, in, in the process of normal activities, have to build proteins, and then those proteins age, and then they break down, and then they have to be recycled so that we can build. Uh, more building blocks、uh, to make new proteins, and unfortunately, cells in the brain and the eye in patients with Batten disease、uh, don't perform that recycling very efficiently. And with time,、um, as that program、uh, degrades,、uh, the cells eventually get sick, and eventually they begin to die. And so, patients with this condition. Uh, as a result of that, they begin to suffer a lot of neurologic symptoms, a lot of vision symptoms that uh, become uh, very disabling,、uh, and then uh, eventually, unfortunately,、uh, it progresses to the point where、uh, patients can't function, and unfortunately, from there, often leads to death. What was Mila's prognosis, and how much urgency was there to find a treatment? When we met, when we met Mila, she was just、uh, six years old, and her prognosis was very poor.、Uh, CLN seven, her particular subtype of Batten disease, is a condition that、uh, often、uh, leads to fatality in the early teenage years,、uh, typically age eleven or twelve. And so、uh, there was a clear sense of、uh, extreme clinical urgency here. When you perform the sequencing. What what did you actually find? Well, we knew that it, it was going to be whatever we found that it was going to likely be something unusual.、Uh, Mila had had a workup that ha- had been matching standard of care to that date. She had had clinical genetic sequencing. She had had testing of all the known Batten disease genes, and that had not found a complete diagnosis. So we knew that whatever was remaining would be something unusual. What we eventually found was that when we performed whole genome sequencing, we found an abnormality in part of her genome that isn't typically interrogated in a clinical gene sequencing test. What we found was an abnormality deep in an intron of her CLN7 gene,、uh, in between the parts that actually code for the protein,、uh, in a non-coding part of the gene, and that abnormality. Uh, which was initially only evident on manual manual review of the data,、uh, turned out to be an unusual insertion of extra DNA that should not be there, and that insertion we traced back through the literature to something called a retrotransposon or a mobile DNA element that,、uh, and these retrotransposons or mobile DNA elements、uh, are found. In our human genomes, and there are unusual pieces of DNA that can move. They can sometimes pick up and copy and paste themselves from one place to another.、Um, they're pretty rare. They're pretty esoteric,、uh, but they have been known to cause genetic disease before. This particular example、um, in our review of the literature was the thirteenth example of a patient who had had this particular type of mutation cause a、uh, genetic disease. Um, so it's it was rare,、um, but、uh, it led to 
us uh, having insights that proved to be useful for her. What made you consider an antisense therapy as a, a potential way to treat her? Well, we were studying what this retrotransposon was doing, this unusual mutation was doing. And when we looked at its location, the location uh, didn't really give us a whole lot of clues. The, this mutation was sitting, as I mentioned, in a part of the gene that did not actually alter the protein. So we had to come up with an alternative hypothesis for what it was doing. And the leading hypothesis was that it was changing the way that the uh, gene was being spliced. It's just so happened at that time, we were reading about another drug that was being tested in patients at that time. That drug uh, was called Spinraza or Nusinersen. And it was being tested in patients with spinal muscular atrophy. And in that spring of 2018, we were uh, reading about really successful phase one and phase two trial results, which were just being published and discussed in, in the neurology community. And primed by that and thinking about the mechanism by which Spinraza worked, uh, we noted that uh, this drug for spinal muscular atrophy worked by changing the splicing of a critical gene responsible for SMA. That parallel between the drug that was designed for SMA altering splicing in a beneficial way and the splicing problem that we were seeing in our patient uh, led us to connect the dots and led us to ask, could we make a version of Spinraza that was actually applicable now to this different disease, to this different patient. So as far as I know, you, you don't have a, a background in drug development. What gave you the confidence given the speed of the disease you were considering? What gave you the, the confidence you'd be able to do this and, and, and do it in a time that would provide any benefit to Mila? Yeah, that's absolutely true. Yeah, we actually did not have any prior drug development experience uh, in this case. Uh, however, I, looking at the situation, we went back to first principles. And uh, while we uh, are a lab that was built to do population genetics, so we ha I have a, a long history of doing molecular biology and neurobiology as well. And fundamentally, when we looked at the way in which Spinraza was designed, uh, these are um, drugs that are uh, called antisense oligonucleotides. Uh, they're based on principles that uh, we have studied for 20 or 30 years um, that are easy to customize for new applications. Uh, these are, are short synthetic uh, molecules that mimic natural RNAs in the, in the body. And you can target them to different parts in the genome by changing the sequence of these, uh, of these oligonucleotides. And when you think about the fundamental building blocks working with oligonucleotides, uh, we actually work with oligonucleotides in the lab on a, a weekly basis. Uh, we can manufacture these really quite quickly and uh, customize them according to principles that we understand. The building blocks and the tools were familiar to us. It was the turning it into an actual clinical grade drug that was unfamiliar to us. But we figured that we'd start with what we knew and explore the proof of principle first. We, and that, so those experiments we could imagine doing relatively quickly in a matter of months. 
And as far as the rest of it, well, uh, we figured we'd work that out as we went along. Well, d- designing the antisensor oligonucleotide is, is one thing, but navigating regulatory and, and manufacturing challenges is a whole nother thing, uh, particularly without being in a drug company. Did you let other people worry about that? Did you address those challenges as they rose? That's a great question. And uh, so uh, our initial goal was uh, let's, let's, uh, was a little bit short of let's go ahead and manufacture a drug ourselves. What we figured was the following. Um, I actually went uh, upstairs. Uh, my laboratory is on the 14th floor at Boston Children's Hospital. And it just so turns out that uh, right upstairs from my laboratory is Lou Kunkel. Uh, Lou Kunkel is a name that is uh, well known to many in the rare disease community because he's the one who uh, discovered the uh, Duchenne's muscular dystrophy gene. And I went up to, sp- to speak to Lou uh, because he had been involved in a number of olig- oligonucleotide-based uh, drugs uh, that had been developed for Duchenne's. And I spoke to Lou about the situation, and Lou advised us that uh, he said, you know, uh, it's going to be uh, quite difficult to pull off what you're describing, but uh, why don't you set this goal? If you can show that this works in principle, perhaps you can find a company who would be willing to manufacture the drug for you. So when we started out this process, that was our initial goal. Uh, we would do the basic science. We would try and demonstrate uh, that uh, this uh, our patient's mutation was druggable. And we would develop a prototype drug to actually uh, to do that. And then uh, following Lou's advice, uh, we thought we would be able to take that to companies that were working in this space, uh, like Biogen or Ionis and uh, companies like that, show them our work, and then see if they could take it the last mile for us. It turned out that for a variety of reasons, including the clinical urgency of the case, and constraints on what the companies are really allowed to do, um, that option, handing it over to a company, didn't actually pan out. Uh, But by that time, we figured out ways that we could try and navigate it ourselves. How quickly were you ultimately able to deliver a treatment to Mila? Well, we first got the idea of doing this in approximately April of 2018. And we began doing experiments with uh, Mila's cells in June uh, of that year. And we had working uh, evidence that uh, we had drugs that were working in her cells by September and October of that year. At the end of the day, um, we spent the uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas holidays getting this drug manufactured. Uh, we spent uh, the and in December, right after we got the drug manufactured, we launched our toxicology studies, uh, and then we were able to begin treating her uh, with FDA permission beginning in January. Uh, so, uh, all in all, from the time that we first had the idea in April to the time um, she was given the first dose, uh, we're talking uh, about nine months. And how is she doing today? You know, uh, Mila continues to have ups and downs. It's a pretty tough disease. Uh, CLN7 is definitely um, one of the biggest challenges out there. 
Um, at, and at the time that we started tre- treatment, uh, she had uh, lost a significant number of um, her faculties, unfortunately. Um, Mila seems to have benefited uh, significantly from treatment over the last two and a half years. Uh, we've seen that her seizures have been uh, much, much easier to manage than many other children with her same condition at her certain at her stage. Uh, in fact, we saw a, a great reduction in the frequency and intensity of her seizures over the first two years. Um, in other areas, uh, she has shown progression. That's not a, a cure. It's not been a cure. I'm so I'm sorry to say, uh, but. We in the family believe that it is significantly improving her quality of life, and so uh, we take uh, a lot of a lot of pride in that. Your work has sparked the imagination of the rare disease community. I, I know there are several efforts to find ways of creating mechanisms for doing this for many patients one at a time. I, I know you've worked on other similar projects since. What are the biggest challenges to industrializing this? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, we're really uh, heartened and, and thankful for the interest that this case is, has generated. Uh, and uh, there have been a number of players who have stepped up, uh, including other academic scientists, uh, professionalist societies like the Oligonucleotides Therapeutic Society, um, and new foundations that have been created uh, including some uh, that uh, were born out of uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies. And, and I'm speaking in particular of Enlorem, a foundation created by Stan Crook, uh, of, uh, previously of Ionis, uh, with support from Biogen and others. So we've been really gratified to see folks stepping up to contribute to the space to see whether this can continue to scale. I think that as a scientist and as a physician, uh, there's much work to be done. We're uh, really excited by the possibilities, but also pretty sober about the fact that this is not going to be easy. This was done uh, so far for Mila, and we are working on a number of other cases uh, like hers that we seek to, to put forward. I think that the biggest barrier or the biggest task to be done is to generate more data. Uh, ends of ones are a lot of work, and at the end of the day, you have outcomes in a single patient to study. And as we all know from running clinical trials, uh, results need to be replicated. And so we have to do a significant amount of work to convince us that this type of path um, is sustainable, um, is sufficiently safe. Um, and at the same time, um, we have to acknowledge that at this moment in these super early s- stages, uh, it takes a lot of work. We think it's worth, I think it's worth pursuing. Uh, I think that our results with Mila, um, while not perfect, uh, were uh, promising and give hope to us exploring this path in other patients. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of collaboration and uh, I think a, a lot of careful thinking to do this right. And just for the record, uh, Stan Crook is still executive chairman of Ionis. Um, <laughs> but how have you seen evolution of the way the FDA is looking to address these types of N of one therapies? I, I think at the outset, uh, this w- was a project that surprised all of us. Uh, but one point that I do want to highlight is that as soon as the FDA wrapped their mind around what it was that we were trying to do, uh, they were 
very collaborative, and we found them to be uh, very supportive um, and provided a lot of helpful input to uh, our managing this case. About a year after we started with Mila, we had the opportunity to sit down with the FDA in a critical path meeting. And uh, when we uh, called this meeting, uh, our intent was to review with the FDA how things were going with our trial and to think ahead to the future requests that, well, the, the requests that we were already receiving, but just to think ahead and, and speak with them about their, their attitudes uh, towards uh, this type of work happening again. And while, of course, it's premature to say uh, exactly where the FDA is going to publicly declare themselves on this issue, we do know that they are working on a guidance to help give investigators and families uh, a, some advice about how they see these cases going forward. I was impressed in that meeting that they see this as a really important issue to grapple with um, and that this is really the beginning of a trend that we can predict is going to be taking over a good part of advanced medicine. Uh, we see that there are tools like gene therapies that are increasingly being customized uh, to particular indications more and more rapidly. We also see that there are tools that by their very nature, CRISPR gene genome editing is going to be slightly different from every one patient to another to another, depending on their type of mutation. So from the FDA and the scientific and the clinical community standpoint, the writing's on the wall that individualization is an issue that we are increasingly having to grapple with. I think that I found them personally to be very uh, accepting and open of this idea, uh, appropriately sober like us about the challenges that are required to change our ways of thinking to accommodate it. Uh, but I am really impressed that they're thinking very seriously and very thoughtfully about it. There are questions about who should get these therapies and, and how they should be funded. Given that there's a potential to align the cost of N1 therapies with the cost of commercial gene therapies, think payers may support such therapies? I think that it is very, very early days. And I think that we have a lot of work in the space uh, before we'll ultimately know the answer to that. Uh, but I do know that this type of work uh, is attracting a lot of interest. And there are many models in which we've uh, been able to uh, accommodate uh, cutting edge therapies. And uh, of course, many of the, the therapies that we consider clinically standard of care today were at one point as uh, cutting edge and uh, perhaps considered as aggressive as, as this particular investiga investigational route that we're pursuing right now. Um, I have faith that down the road, as we get more data um, and we uh, get this process more efficient, that the payers will look at this um, appropriately. I think that it's too soon to say when that will happen. Um, and certainly costs in gene therapy in general, as well as individualized therapies, uh, remain an issue that all of us know is really critically important, has to be addressed from all sides, from the payers, from uh, advocates de describing exactly what quality outcomes are important to them and how much quality of life uh, is, quote, worth, unquote. 
there's huge issues to grapple with. But I, I think that, you know, looking ahead as a forward facing statement, I, I think that if we do it right, that that will come. You mentioned that in the wake of the Mila case, there were entities that have actually emerged to really bring these forward as a, a potential therapeutic alternative for patients. What do you think it'll take to see this as a viable option for patients with rare and ultra rare conditions? Yeah, so I'm personally aware of and involved in uh, several of in several efforts. Um, some foundation sponsored, uh, some uh, as large as Enlorem, others are smaller private foundations that are focused on a particular uh, a rare disease. And without naming names, I can think of five or six efforts that are ongoing in, in this space. I think what it's going to take is that as a field, we're going to have to uh, gather more data and, and see what happens uh, with a, a, a small pilot series of these cases. Uh, we're talking about having one case uh, with that's in the book, record books right now, with uh, Mielison being the only published example of this. But I think as experience accrues, and we see, for instance, let's do the thought experiment. If if we fast forward to two years from now, and now we've uh, had the opportunity to see uh, how well this does or doesn't work in half a dozen or a dozen cases then we'll be in a much better position to uh, really project uh, how quickly this is, this is going to spread. Um, I know that there's intense interest in it right now. Efforts like Enlorem are uh, stepping up to uh, support this um, from um, Ionis and Biogen's, uh, with Ionis and Biogen's help. Um, I myself have um, been involved in an effort to set up a foundation which I'm not going to disclose the details of at the moment, but working with Julia Vitarello of um, Mila's mother um, and uh, as the CEO of Mila's Miracle Foundation, uh, we're working on another nonprofit effort uh, to help support uh, more work in this space. Uh, details on that uh, may be forthcoming hopefully soon. I think that efforts like this, uh, professional efforts to collate standards. We're working with the Oligonucleotides Therapeutic Society on a, a guidance document or uh, that can be put out there that uh, hopefully uh, will provide some additional input to whatever the FDA produces as well. I think with efforts like this, uh, we'll likely see uh, more, uh, more uh, coordinated uh, efforts here in the next in the next year or two. And I think coordination is really important. We know the drive is there. That's already welled up from the community itself uh, with many efforts, uh, grassroots efforts uh, moving forward. I think the trick will be in coordinating them so that each of these is not a one-off, but contributes to a bigger whole that makes the whole field move faster. Timothy you, neurologist and attending physician in the Division of Genetics and Genomics at Boston Children's Hospital and assistant professor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School. Tim, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks so much for having me, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. 
You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.